Well, it's a beautiful Christmas piece. And I have to tell you, Christmas Sunday is really one of my favorite days of the year. It's always great to be gathered with God's people anytime, but especially on this day, to celebrate our Savior coming into the world. For our reading this morning, we're going to look at the familiar passage in Luke chapter 2. And if you're physically able, if you would stand for our reading this morning, we'll read the first 11 verses here in Luke chapter 2. I know many families read this passage on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and so it's a familiar passage for many. Verse number one, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, out of the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This morning we're going to continue our series, God With Us, and it's our third message of the series. Today our topic is the person, and let's pray. Father, would you work now on this Christmas Sunday in our hearts, and I pray that you would be at the center of everything that we do in our lives, not only during this season, but year-round, and really for as long as you allow us to live on this earth, that we would focus on you as the reason for it all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And would you listen to this song this morning? His eyes are mercy, His word is rest, for each tomorrow, for Are there burdens in your heart? 
Is your past a memory that binds you? Is there some pain that you've carried far too long? Then strengthen your heart with his good news. There is a Savior, and he's forgiven you. There is a Savior. What joys express. His eyes are mercy. And his work is rest. For each tomorrow, for yesterday, there is a Savior who lights our way. God has saved us, and he's called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But that grace is now manifested to, to us by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the good news. There is a
thank the Lord there is a Savior. We're so blessed to call him our Lord. I mentioned last Sunday that uh, we have an adoptive family project for this Christmas season. And we uh, are so excited that we have some staff members who are coming in. Uh, hopefully by this Saturday, Lord willing, Aaron and Melissa Weil are coming in. And uh, they may even be here to lead worship uh, with some of our worship team next Sunday. So uh, a couple things on that. We've sent out an email, and I think we've maybe made some announcements about some of the things that we could do to help them and be a blessing to them. They still need a washer and dryer and a refrigerator and maybe some other furniture pieces. And my wife will send an email out early this week. But I think that uh, their rental house is going to let them, starting on Tuesday, put some things in the garage. And so we really want to get into that house and and make it nice for them. And Lord willing, I said they'll arrive on Saturday. There's one other thing that you could do to help. Um, they've given a request to have a utility trailer with some things down in Utah. And uh, their parents are going to go down for Christmas from uh, up here in Idaho. And if you have a truck or an SUV or something with a hitch that you'd be willing to let Mike Weil use, Mike's a pastor up in Prairie, to go down and get that trailer. If you would see me about that, yeah, that'd be a blessing to this family as well. We'll send you an email out, though, and, and it's going to be an exciting couple of weeks as they get settled, and we're excited about them being here. Well, let's get going on our Christmas Sunday message, and we know that it's uh, this is one of the craziest weeks of the year. The truth is, it should be one of the most relaxing and enjoyable weeks, but a lot of times we make it crazy, and you're going to have people... Uh, who are down at Walgreens Thursday night at 11 o'clock, still trying to get gifts. And most of them will be husbands who are looking for that special gift, right? Uh, still trying to find that special gift. And one lady waited just like that until the last minute to send Christmas cards. And she knew she had 49 people on her list. So she rushed into a store and she bought a package of 50 cards and didn't even really look at the cards. She was in such a big hurry. She just addressed the 49, and she signed them all. She didn't even read what the message said. And on Christmas Day, when things had kind of quieted down a little bit, she happened to come across that one leftover card. And she finally opened it up, and she read the message, and this is what it said. This card is just to say, a little gift is on the way. And so then she put herself into a little bit more of a bind. And I know that it's a, a busy season, it's easy for us to miss who we really celebrate. A fellow named Jim was leaving church after Christmas services, and pastor greeted him and said, Jim, it's time that you join the army of the Lord. We need to see you here every Sunday, man. And, and he said, well, I'm already in the army of the Lord, pastor. And a pastor said, well, why do we only see you on Christmas and Easter then? And Jim looked to the right and left, and then he leaned over and whispered, I'm in the secret service. And so I hope you're not in the secret service in God's army. I'm glad you're here on this Christmas Sunday. We're delighted to have you. So the angel brought the news now, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And even though at Christmas we rejoice at the baby that these shepherds would find in the manger, we are reminded that Christmas is not really just about a tiny baby in a manger, but about the person of Messiah come to save us from our sins. 
as Kathy just sang, there is a Savior. And we're going to detail the traits of this person coming to the world in the form of a baby in Bethlehem. Our secondary text this morning is over in the book of Philippians chapter 2. And if you'll turn over there, I have several verses over there that I think would be very important for us to cover as we look at four traits that are found only in Jesus Christ this morning. Four traits that are found only in Jesus Christ. The notes are provided in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with us today. We understand first that he is totally God. Totally God. Look at Philippians 2. Verse number five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. When we read those words in the form of God, because of the way we read them in English, we might think that Jesus was only like God. But it's actually much bigger than that. Jesus was not just like God. Instead, Christ was and is and ever shall be God. Here's something to think about. Absolutely no one can appear in the form of God without actually being God. You might think of it this way. The only thing that can be an apple is an apple. Right? Now, you can bring the fake apple a little plastic apple. You could bring the plaster apple. You remember those? You guys ever have plaster apples? Don't ever throw those at anyone. Um, I'm just telling you, it could be a disaster. And you know, You've got all the sorts of apples that are fake, but the only real apple is an apple. There's no way to be like an apple. You have to be an apple to be an apple. Everybody understand what I'm saying? Now we're getting too far into the apples here, and, and we don't want to do that. But Christ was and is and ever shall be God. The word form is not talking about his shape. It's talking about his being. And I want you to notice the use of that word there in verse number six. Look what it says, who being in the form of God, ever existing, immortal, invisible, only wise God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already existing at the time of creation. In fact, it tells us that all things were created by Him. Jesus did not find it robbery to be equal with God because He legitimately is equal. He is God. Take a look back, if you would, at John chapter 5. John chapter 5 has a passage where Jesus spoke himself at the healing of a sick man on the Sabbath day. And as he was explaining this miracle, there's something that he speaks of in his own deity. Look at John chapter 5, verse number 17. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. So he says, my father's been working, and I've been working. And we read that the Jews who were there in verse 18, they sought the more to kill him. Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. 
And so these Jews believed that Jesus had spoken blasphemy because he said that he was God. And yet Jesus, in the same passage, defended his claim. He defended his equality with God. I want you to see it because it elaborates on four additional claims here in this passage that only God could make. And if you like to take notes, you write these on the back of your other notes. I didn't provide them in your notes. The first thing he claimed was that, look at this, verse 19. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. So the first thing we understand is that he did what the Father did, making himself equal with God. He claimed that he could do the works of God, and he claimed that he did the works of God. Yeah, so he said he did what the Father did. The next thing, if you continue down through verse number 20, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater than these, that ye may marvel, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. That word quicken means to make alive. So the second claim Jesus gave is that he had the power to give life to others. As the Father has life in himself, the Son also has life in himself and could give life to others. Verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So the Father judges no one. He's committed all judgment to the Son. And we understand this third claim, the Son is the judge of all mankind. He's the judge of every human being who's ever lived. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. So Jesus insisted that he should be honored just as the Father is honored. And that those who dishonor the Son, dishonor the Father. And so those are four claims that Jesus gave in this, just this one passage of his equality with God, of who he was as the God-man. So he was totally God. Then I want you to see the second part. He was also totally man. He's totally God, but he's totally man. Back to Philippians 2. And I got you moving from Scripture to Scripture here a little bit this morning. Try to keep you awake. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 7 now. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Please do not be confused on this one. In becoming a human being, Jesus did not empty himself of the possession of his deity. He was still God. In fact, his very name is God with us. That's the series we're covering. He was still Emmanuel. That name explains it so well. But Jesus did empty himself of the privileges of his deity. 
He didn't exchange deity for humanity, but he did set aside the glory of heaven. He set aside the face-to-face relationship with the Father. He set aside his independent authority, and he submitted completely to the will of God. In fact, at the end of his life, you notice in the garden, Father, not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus surrendered the use of some of his divine attributes. He experienced hunger and thirst. He experienced lack of sleep. He experienced suffering. The Bible says he was tempted in all points as a human being, like we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus emptied himself of the privileges he had as God and took upon himself the form of a slave. He willingly became a servant of the sinful human race to the point of crucifixion. Jesus died for the redemption of his own creation. To absorb that sentence is so hard to even think of it. He died for the redemption of his own creation. Because he wanted created beings who loved him by choice. He wanted us as human beings not to be programmed robots, not to be like the plant and animal kingdom that willingly glorify him without choice. The Bible says that if we don't glorify him, the rocks will cry out. If we don't glorify him, the trees of the field will clap their hands. And we have the choice to understand that this was the totally God, totally man, Savior of the world, and to honor him. Think of it this way. No one doubted his humanity. Never do we find in the Gospels that anyone ever said, I'm not sure he's a human being. Right? We never see that. He was a common man. Isaiah 53 said, that he was just like any other person, and you would not be able to point him out in a crowd by his humanity. He had a normal body. Jesus spoke of his body parts, his hands, his feet, his side, his flesh, his blood. The Jews saw him completely as a man, but most failed to recognize him as God. And so Jesus was totally God and totally man at the same time. Theologians call this, and I'm going to give you a big word here, and hopefully it doesn't blow your mind. We have some kids who just came back from Bible college for Christmas, and they probably know this term. And this is called the hypostatic union, right? Does anybody know? doesn't ring a bell. The hypostatic union. I'm going to show it to you uh, over in Hebrews chapter 1. I don't want to go too deep on this, but I do want to go deep enough into the deity, into the understanding of who our Savior is. Because we get wrapped up at this time of year on a way in a manger, no crib for bed, and we don't understand sometimes and put it all together that the God of creation went into the manger. The God of creation hung on the cross. Look at Hebrews 1, verse number 3. Who being the brightness of His glory... And the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And that word person, about a third of the way through the verse, 
is the Greek word hypostasis, which is where we get that hypostatic union thing from. And so that word doesn't mean a whole lot really to anybody probably in here. But that word person is one person who is truly God, truly man, and still yet one person. Let me give you an example, and maybe if you learn by practicality, think of it this way. In Mark 4, they're in a storm, and Jesus is asleep in the stern of the ship. That's human. But a few minutes later, he stands and rebukes the wind and the waves. That's divine. In the same one person, humanity and divinity. In Mark 11, Jesus is hungry. That's human. But the tree has no figs, and so he curses the tree. That's divine. Jesus is human and divine in one person. That baby in the manger needed swaddling clothes to keep him warm. And yet he's the very God who created the universe itself. Spall, poked by inspiration. If you are going to get your tongue tied, you don't really want to do it on Christmas Sunday. Paul spoke by inspiration. Um, my parents were here a few weeks ago. And any time they can, they remind me of the first time I ever preached on video. And I think I was about 13 years old. And that's when the video cameras were like this big, right? You put it up on your shoulder. And um, I was preaching from 2 Timothy 4.2, and my voice hadn't even changed yet. And I was still the same height, though, so it was kind of a neat thing. But I was preaching on uh, 2 Timothy 4.2, where it says, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season. And I said, Repove, rebuke, with all long suffering." And uh, they, just whenever they can, they like to bring that up, right? You get all the tongue-tied things. And if you think you would never get tongue-tied up here, then I invite you to come next Sunday and do the message, okay? It can happen. But Paul spoke by inspiration to this young man, Timothy. And here's what he said in 1 Timothy 3.16. And this is such an important verse on deity. You should look it up sometime. Uh, Some of the modern versions have taken the Greek word theos and changed it to the word he, which is a pronoun, Theos, everywhere else in the New Testament, is the word God. It says, in this was manifested, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. It doesn't say he was manifest in the flesh. It says God was manifest in the flesh. And that's an important distinction of divinity. Totally man, totally God, one person. And then we see this third part. So we kind of got the, we got the technical stuff out of the way, right? The hypostatic union is now behind us. Totally man, totally God. But now we see totally sufficient. Totally sufficient. Back to Philippians chapter 2. And you guys are doing great out there. Philippians chapter 2. If you're on this side of the room, you may not have noticed that you're cold. But... We just found out that some person, whether we don't know who it was, it could have been a a teenager who was trying to cause trouble, it could have been a little kid who didn't know what it was, somebody on our big heater out here turned the gas off. 
that went out and turned the natural gas off. Well, it probably, we think it happened a few weeks ago because Jim told me he's been cold for about three weeks. And, and so what's happened is we've had the thermostat on and it's just been blowing air from the outside to heat us. You guys understand what I'm saying here? So we fi finally figured it out and we're going to get it fixed, but uh, that's why you may be cold today over there because you don't have any heat. So if you're on this side of the room, you're probably sleeping. This side of the room is very alert right now. And they're kind of engaged, looking at me. They're over here, they're like, hypo what? You know, over here, they're basically theologians by now. So the baby was named Jesus, and we know that it's the name which is above every name. But in Philippians 2, verse number 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. So Jesus would be the name. He would be the Savior. That's what Jesus means. But you know, Jesus is also, as the angel announced, remember what he said? A Savior, so that's Jesus, which is Christ the Lord. So three names, all for the same guy. So we got Jesus, we've got Christ, we've got Lord. Jesus and Savior mean the same thing. So he's also known as Christ. And that expresses him as Messiah or anointed one. The Hebrew word for it was Masiach. The first time that that word is ever used is, let me just show it to you. You people on this side are so alert and so into this that let's go back over and show you this in 1 Samuel. You may remember in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that there was a lady named Hannah who prayed for a son miraculously. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she now has a son. And her son is Samuel. And she's giving this prophetic prayer now or this song that she sang out to God. And here's what she sang out. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse number 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now that's the first time ever in Scripture that the Hebrew word masiach is used, or anointed one. Jesus, as Christ, is the Messiah or the anointed one that the house of David and the Jews were to be looking for. But at the same time, he's not just Jesus, Savior. He's not just Christ, anointed one, but he's also Lord. And this is the more difficult one for us because for him to be the Lord of those who truly receive salvation, we have to actually seat him on the throne of our lives. Right? So it's one thing to pray a prayer and say, Jesus is my Savior. It's one thing to understand that he was prophesied and he's the anointed one. But it's quite another thing for him to be the Lord of my life. For him to be the one who's at the center of every decision I make. And sometimes people try to separate these terms. They, they say, well, Jesus can't be the Savior of your life until he's the Lord of your life. Right? That doesn't really make any sense because you have to bring him in, the one person, all at the same time. 
You can't bring in parts. Like, okay, I'm going to bring him in as Savior, and now I'm going to bring him in as Christ, and in a few years, if everything works out, I'm going to make him Lord. It's not how it works. Other people have gotten it wrong the other direction. The famous preacher in Southern California says that he has to be your Lord before he's your Savior. That's lordship salvation is the theological term for you people on this side to grab. Okay? Lordship salvation. The Bible never teaches lordship salvation. The Bible teaches that the one person, Jesus Christ the Lord, comes into the heart at one time into your life. I was reading this interesting thing. It's so cool. The word savior in Korean is the word kuju. Right? Kuju. Kuju. Do you understand what I'm saying? Kuju. It has two characters. Okay? Because Korean language uses characters, not letters. The first character, ku, means save. The second character, ju, means lord. If you put it together, here's what it means. The Lord who saves. The Lord who saves. So Jesus is Savior, and the Savior must be Lord of your life. Now many professing Christians, especially here in the United States, only give lip service to God. And they've really never bowed in true repentance before the Savior of the world and made Him Lord of their lives. Now I want you to understand this morning that He is totally sufficient He alone is totally sufficient to be your Christ, your Savior, and your Lord all at one time. The last verses we're going to see in the passage here in Philippians 2 remind us why it's so important to make Jesus your Savior and Lord. So back to Philippians 2, and we'll see this fourth part of the message this morning. So he's totally God, totally man, totally sufficient, Philippians 2, verse number 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there we see the term again. Jesus Christ equals Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. All three of them. Savior Anointed one, Lord, all in one. It's clearly evident, if you read the scripture from a responsible point of view, and if you're not reading it as a skeptic, but you're reading it as someone who's saying, God, would you reveal yourself to me? It's clearly evident that there are not ways to God. There's only the way. Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me. I am the way. And the thing is, you don't get to choose what path you want to take to God. Boy, there's a lot of talk out there these days. Well, as long as you believe something, that's what's important. As long as you've found a path that works for you, that's what's important. As long as you have a belief system that you buy into, that's what's important. You know, actually, that's not what's important. In fact, Proverbs says twice that that's the path to destruction. In fact, here's the direct quote. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, 
but the end thereof are the ways of death. And when we, on our own, with our own merits and our own mindset, come to God and say, God, I'm going to believe in this as my way to salvation. It's not how it works. We don't get to define the terms. And I'm going to be truthful with you this morning because God loves you. And I love you. So I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. There is only one way to salvation. His name is Jesus Christ. That is not politically correct, but it is absolutely true. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you today that as long as you believe in some God or some deity, that you're good to go, because I'd be lying to you. I'm not going to tell you that if I could take you in a two-week Bible study through a certain book, that then you're going to know more about who the atonement is. Now, I could tell you right now, you could be saved today through Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to tell you that if you go to church every Sunday that you're going to be able to go to heaven. Because church won't get you there. Not this church, not any church. Good works won't get you there. Baptism won't get you there. Immersion or sprinkling, neither one. Penance won't get you there. A pilgrimage won't get you there. A gift to the gods won't get you there. Waiting to see what happens when you get there won't get you there. Letting it all be sorted out of the judgment won't get you there. Only Jesus will get you to salvation and eternal life. The Bible says, he that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God has not life. And some days we read in Philippians 2, every soul, every knee, every tongue, even those who hate Jesus will confess he indeed is God. Even the ones who say, there is no Christmas, there is no God, let's celebrate atheism, they will someday bow before the Creator, Jesus Christ, and confess that He indeed is God. He is the very God who made them. Now, this Christmas, the question would have to be for all of us. Do you have a personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ? Have you established in your mind that He is totally God, that He's totally man, that He's totally sufficient, and He's totally exclusive? No man comes to the Father but by Him. And really, that's the message of Christmas. And so, when we see the baby in the manger, it's easy for us to get wrapped up in the beauty of the season. And to hear Silent Night, and to hear O Holy Night, and to sing about how it came upon a midnight clear, and how there was a little drummer boy. There wasn't really a little drummer boy, but it's a neat song. And we hear about we three kings, and we don't even know if there are three kings or three gifts. And we get so wrapped up in all of this stuff, and the Christmas tree, and, and Black Friday, and shopping and got to make sure I got a gift for him, got to make sure a gift for her, and then I got to make sure that if I've got more than one kid that the gifts equal out. Right? And even if I got him five presents and him only four, then the money has to equal out. And I'll tell you what, it is a tangled web that we weave. Isn't it? It's just so hard. And, and then maybe you've got, like, I've got four little sisters, and I don't even know how many kids they all have. I can't even wrap my brain around the fact that there's that many kids. 
I can't even understand that my wife also has four sisters, and I have absolutely no idea how many kids they have. Because if we tried to cover the whole ball of wax, we would be living beneath the poorhouse, not just in the poorhouse. And maybe you're like that. Maybe you've got like 25 grandkids and 32 great-grandkids and cousins and aunts and uncles and your boss and your pastor that you always want to take care of. They gave me this week somebody. This is the most creative thing that's ever happened. Um, it's so cool. Um, we had a staff party uh, with our school staff. And uh, technically, I didn't even know why they wanted me to come because I'm like the Scrooge of the, of the whole place. But they asked me to come, and so I had to do this secret Santa thing for somebody. And so my wife kind of helped me, and we got this thing together. And then they did the secret Santa thing for me, and they opened it up. And it, would you believe it or not, it's this thermal Dutch Brothers cup that keeps your coffee hot for like 14 hours. Right? So that's great. And then I reach in, like, well, what is this? And I thought maybe it's a bag of, you know, M&Ms or something. You know what it was? One of my staff members discovered that my favorite item in the world, perhaps, is Gail Rocklet's banana bread. And they went and made some sort of a deal with her. I don't know if they sold their soul or what they did. For her to make a thing of banana bread that they could put in their gift bag for me. Isn't that creative? That's just creative. I don't know how we got on that. I just wanted to talk about banana bread. How we got there. So we get wrapped up in all these things that we do for each other. And I'm going to make it the special gift this year. And, And sometimes we just lose sight that he's totally God. A totally God. Totally man. He's totally sufficient. He's Jesus. He's Christ. And he's Lord. I better make him Lord of my life because he's totally exclusive and there's no man who comes to the Father except through him. And that's our message for Christmas. Let's bow this morning. As we bow, we're going to close the service and prayer in just a moment. But as we bow, would you bow your heart before God right now? No matter who you are, if you're a child of his or maybe if you've never received him, And would you bow before the God of creation, the baby of the manger, the Jesus of the cross, and would you say to him, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I really want you to be Lord of my life. I'm not going to try to claim you as Savior, but not Lord. I'm not going to claim you as my ticket to heaven, but never make you the Lord of my life. And would you be the Lord of my life? Would I bow my heart before you as I go through this season in 2016? Father, would you take our commitments that we've made to you in these moments in the quiet recesses of our heart where we've said to you, would you be the Lord of my life? And would you help us to follow through? Would you enable us through the Spirit of God to every day come before your throne, to every day claim you again as Lord, and to thank you as Savior, and to rejoice in you as the Anointed One. Guide us now through this season. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we dismiss today, there's a couple of things to remember. Tonight, we're having communion at 5.30, and then there's 10 of those books that you can buy as Christmas gifts. And then if you want to help with the wiles and you have any question, uh, Aaron and Melissa, who are moving this week, if you would stop in the lobby on your way out and talk to my wife, because she knows more of the details of all that. And I just want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And I just can't tell you enough how I love you. And my family is so blessed. And we, we just enjoy you so much. And we're thankful for you. And we just pray God's richest blessings on you during this time of the year. And really during the, all the time of the year. And just be a friend to somebody through this season. God bless you. You're dismissed.